Testing, testing, check, check. ID is here. Welcome. Welcome everyone. Glad to see you, True ID. to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for showing up on a Tuesday afternoon to spend some time with me and talk about evidence for God and how atheists and Christians view it. I'm so glad that you're all here and I'm, I can't believe it. I can't believe it that already, already we've got a super chat. I'm going to go ahead and knock that out right from the front, right from the top. Punch bowl haircut. Thank you for being here today. Um, thank you for the super chat. Yo, Braxton, what is your favorite Zelda game? Well, for the longest time, it was the classic 19, uh, uh, yeah, late mid 1990s, uh, the Ocarina of Time for the Nintendo 64. But I have to say um, that uh, the new one for the Switch may have may have taken that spot. I mean, I, and that's hard for me to say. It's really hard for me to say, but but yeah, I think that's probably true. So glad that you guys are all here, and so we're going to jump right into this pretty quickly. Why did I pick a, a discussion or a debate that happened so long ago? Well, it's because it's a super interesting one. I had never seen it. I listened to it, and I thought, wow, there is so much to comment on here. In fact, there's so much to comment on, I didn't even get to put it all, all the clips into this video. I may have to come back another time and do some more because it is... Uh, it's some really good stuff, and it's interesting because Michael Roos, you may famously know Michael Roos as the guy who said, um, atheist philosopher who said about Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, that it made him ashamed to be an atheist. Um, but uh, in fact, I put that out there on Twitter one time, and people just wouldn't believe until I linked the actual video and, and articles and things. But anyway, um, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at their discussion because I think that uh, Roos is a, a very um, honest, 
uh, about his positions and more sensible than some atheists are. And so, um, uh, and there are plenty of sensible atheists. We have a lot in our audience, so we're glad that you're here. But let's uh, let's go ahead and jump right in, and let's get a little bit of Michael Roos' bio. As he, I think what you're going to see a theme emerge here, as I indicated on the thumbnail, is that Michael Roos is interested in experience and 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 the the message that the, the kind of message that might stand behind biblical stuff. Um, whereas the Christian is obviously interested in the message, but interested in the truth and the reality of it and the evidence. The Christian's interested in the evidence. The atheist wants an experience instead. You'll see what I mean as we go through it, because it might be hard to believe. But let's begin listening to Michael Roos talk a little bit about his own personal biographic material. Well, first of all, as you can tell from my accent, I was born in England. In fact, I was born in Birmingham in 1940. My father was a conscientious objector, and during the war, they came in contact with the Quakers, and after the war, my father and my mother joined the Quakers, and so I grew up very intensely, very intensely, uh, as a Quaker, uh, to the extent that I was sent away to a Quaker boarding school when I was a teenager. I'm still not quite sure, but about the age of 20, 21, my faith started to fade. As I say, it wasn't a St. Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus experience in reverse. It was just, as I like to say, like collecting stamps and loving baked beans. One day I did these things and loved these things, and the next day they'd more or less gone. And I, I, I really thought back then at 2021, well, I'm sure if I get to 70, I'll be getting back on side with the big chap in the sky. Uh, but it, it just wasn't that sort of way. However, that said, my non-existent God, who's a Calvinist, <laughs> and so guides everything that we do, uh, made sure that I was going to work on Charles Darwin, which meant that I was uh, brought into contact with the science-religion relationship. And so this has been something which has been both a personal interest and a professional interest, because I'm a my, my daytime job is as a professor of philosophy. And so this has been a, a, a constant, uh, what shall I say, topic of great interest to me. I've spent a lot of time fighting creationists in the 40s, but I've also come in more and more in contact with people like John who uh, are genuinely trying to bridge the gap between science and religion. As I say, uh, I'm 78 now, and I don't have any more faith. I, I, I'm an atheist about Christianity, but I'm fairly agnostic about whether any of it means anything, and I'm sure this will come out more in the discussion. So I always like to say, once a Quaker, always a Quaker. And I've certainly grown up with an intense sense that the only truly happy person is the person who's serving others. And uh, I've been very, very lucky. I've been a professor all my life. It's a, it's a wonderful job that way. But also, the Quakerism I grew up with was very mystical in a way, that God really wasn't somebody like me in a, in a bedsheet, uh, <laughs> and, and much more unknown and unknowable. Um, as I say, I, I no longer believe in a, a force for good or, or a force for ill, at least in that sort of way. Uh, but certainly my religion then and now 
has always been one which, you know, is it Christian, is it agnostic? You know, there are days when I'm, I'm not quite sure. No, it, it's pretty much always agnostic, but it's, it's on a continuum. Uh, it's not like Richard Dawkins, where you go along and then suddenly you fall off the cliff. <laughs> Okay, so a lot there to jump into. So first of all, he says he grew up a Quaker, and he says that his parents were kind of intentionally Quakers, which I take him to mean that they were serious about it. They were trying to, you know, take this very seriously and wanted him to take it seriously. But he says he lost interest as someone would lose interest in collecting stamps or lose interest in baked beans. Um, here's the thing about that. Now, notice this is not the way that most of our internet atheists, YouTube atheists will um, typically talk about this. It's a major issue in their lives when they stop believing or when they declare themselves an atheist. And why is that? It's because if you're taking it, if you're doing this thing intentionally, if Christianity is a part of your life, it absorbs your life to the extent that when you're teaching your kids around the house, you tell them when they're doing something wrong, hey, that's not what the Bible tells us to do. That's not what uh, Jesus wants us to do. He doesn't want us to act like that. Um, we, um, we, we make sure that when we get a message uh, from a textbook or just a book or reading or a novel or a film or something like that, we say, well, we think about intentionally, what does, how does this pair with my Christianity? When we're taking in information, we, we say, does this overturn my Christianity? What does my Christianity have to say to this? It infects our, it affects, <laughs> infects and, in a good way and affects our moral behavior. All of these things, it's, it's, it's absolutely the centerpiece of your life if you're a Christian. And so as a result, it cannot be something that you just lose interest in, like baked beans or stamp collecting. That's why it is when YouTube atheists uh, talk about their deconversion experience, it is a major issue that ends up, they're worried that it's going to destroy their relationships. It, it puts them into a time perhaps of absolute uh, destabilization in their lives and their worldview. It's a big deal. It's a big deal because it is the centerpiece, or at least for it should be. And for some, it's at least very close to the center of everything in their worldview. So it's weird that he says that it's just like, and it leads me to think it wasn't quite that way for him, but I can't judge. I just, I don't see how, I can't relate to how that happens if you really are making this a part of your life in a big way. Secondly, notice that he says after he had that happen and he got into the stuff that he was really interested in, he says that uh, the Calvinist God, his God that he doesn't believe exists, was the Calvinist God which I take him to mean, and, and I know he's being a bit facetious, but I do think many atheists perceive of God this way and use this kind of as an out for themselves. It's something like, if there is a God, he's the one who had me studying Darwin, right? He's the one that had me heading down this path of atheism and interest in my studies. I mean, he controls everything, including my thoughts and my actions, which very much is the Calvinist conception of God. Um, though they might nuance it differently. And so I think there are a lot of atheists. I've, he I've heard them say things like this. I could list off uh, several of them who would say, you know, uh, hey, if God controls everything, he hasn't given me that irresistible grace that determines my belief. And so as a result, um, I, I can't help it. If he wants me to be different, he should just make me different, make me interested in different things. But that's not what the majority of Christianity has always believed. And I don't believe it's what the Bible teaches. And I have debated that that's not what the Bible teaches on the debate stage live publicly, and, and I'm happy to talk about it further. So, um, but I think people use that as a, as a way of getting out of, you know, feeling less concerned about it. And I want to tell you, if that's you out there and you're a skeptic and you thought, well, I really don't believe, but if there is a God, it's his fault anyway, because he could have determined my belief. You're not off the hook because you put yourself in a situation to 
to uh, to open yourself up to things that we choose. People say we don't choose our beliefs. We do choose our beliefs in that we uh, it's called indirect doxastic voluntarism, where we put ourselves in a position where we open ourselves up and we open our interests up and our behavior up to adopt certain beliefs as a result of others. A good example of that is something like uh, Tim Stratton puts it this way: when he met his, I think it's his his wife's son. He didn't ha he didn't love that kid. He couldn't just choose to love him immediately. Uh, he could choose to treat him with love immediately, but he couldn't choose to have the feelings of love toward that son immediately. But what he could do is put himself in situations where that feeling would arise naturally. And you can choose your beliefs in that way. But this business of, well, it's the Calvinist God and he decides all these things. Um, not necessarily. And I would argue that's not the case. The case. Um, uh, he says he's an atheist about Christianity. That's very interesting. So I take him to mean, and he clarifies this when Justin Brierley presses him on this later. He says something like, well, I'm agnostic about some of this, but I'm atheistic toward the Christian God, which I take him to mean that he, he disbelieves, he actively disbelieves in the Christian God, whereas he's just agnostic in general about theism. Uh, this is something that only came, I only realized recently, but T-Jump has said something like this. Uh, Paul Logia, in his discussion with Kent Hovind's son, Eric Hovind, said this. He's atheistic about the Christian God in the strong sense of atheism, like not just a lack of belief, but he, he holds the belief that such a God does not exist. Understand what that means. That means that you now hold the burden of proof, and now you have... You have to make an argument. You have to get, well, you don't have to, but if you want me to believe you, you've got to give arguments. The burden of proof is now just as much on you as it is on me. You've shouldered your burden of proof um, to now give evidence and reasons to believe uh, that, a, that there is no God. And so I look forward to hearing some of that, but I don't really ever hear that. What I hear is this, well, I'm just a, I, I just lack a belief. That's not what atheism is. But if you're taking the position that the Christian God does not exist, you need to give evidence and arguments and all of that to show that at least the Christian God does not exist. That's very, very important. He also says, I always believed God is uh, ultimately unknowable and, and unknown. Now, that's not a direct quote. That's me paraphrasing. But he said he's had this mystical understanding of God. And I took him to mean, even when he was uh, a professing Christian, that he thought of God as unknowable and, and ultimately unknown. Now, some, now, many skeptics and certainly even many Christians hold this position that, well, I believe in God. Yes, that's my religious affiliation. And yes, I believe it's true in my heart or whatever. But ultimately, in a scientific evidence-y sort of philosophy sort of way, it's unknowable and unknown. Um, but there's a problem with that. First of all, that is begging the question because, well, it's, it's, it's self-referentially incoherent in this way. If you're saying that God is unknowable, to say that God is unknowable is to say, I know something about God. The thing that I know about God is that he's unknowable, which you see is a contradiction. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt and steel man it a little bit and back off and let's paint it this way to say what he might be saying is, look, uh, I think he's unknowable, but that's all I can know is that he's unknowable. Um, then the question would become, how do you know that he's unknowable? You would have to have omniscience to know that. You would have to know the personal experiences and reasons that every single individual on planet Earth and through the history of mankind has for believing. And, and you would have to be able to show a defeater for all of those. And you haven't done that. Or you would have to show that uh, God does not exist which, of course, then he wouldn't just be unknowable. You would know that God doesn't exist. So that is a completely untenable position. So those are some initial thoughts on Roos's 
uh, biography there. Now, Mason Galioth, let's see what you're saying here. May, uh, he says, Braxton, you misunderstand the point. The issue isn't that the Bible teaches it. Skeptics make skeptics take the claims about Yahweh's omnipotence to task and follow it. Uh, they take it to task and follow it to its conclusion. Yeah, I, I don't know what that has directly to do with what we're talking about here. We we aren't talking necessarily about God's omnipotence. Um, if you're if you're pointing to something like the omnipotence paradox, which is what it sounds like you're pointing to, which comes in a family of what are called incoherence arguments, the omnipotence paradox is something like if you if you take that on and you can do this with any of the omni attributes, if you take those and bend them over on themselves, you run into contradiction. So it's the whole can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it, which is a complete misunderstanding of classic Orthodox Christianity, which says God is able to do anything. The thing is, what that would be, building a rock so big you could making a rock so big you couldn't lift it, that would be a contradictory thing, and those things aren't things. That's nonsense. That's not even a clear concept. Um, it's a contradiction. And so it's not a problem. God's able to do anything. It's just that contradictions aren't things. They're nonsense. So that's how we'd answer that, if that's what you meant. If that's not what you meant, I don't know what you mean. All right, let's go on to the next clip and hear what he has to say next. Do you feel like you could still be persuaded that, that... No, I don't think so. You don't think so? I don't think so. Uh, I, I don't think, first of all, and I think this is where John and I are going to disagree very strongly, is I'm not very keen on being persuaded in the sense of, is there some evidence that would tip you over to whatever? I could certainly see some experience might fill me with faith. I don't expect it to happen. Mm. but. That's the only way that I could see it happening. Yeah, okay, so this is the reason for what's on the thumbnail. This atheist would rather have an experience than have evidence. Now, um, I don't think I'm in any way strawmanning him. He's saying I, the evidence wouldn't convince me. He's not saying the evidence I've seen doesn't convince me. I'm sure that's true. But he's saying evidence wouldn't convince me. It wouldn't be some kind of evidence. It would be an experience that would convince me. And... Uh, you know, that's uh, that's an interesting thing there, because the, the, this is what Christians are often accused of. Right. We're, we're accused of, well, you guys aren't interested in evidence. You just want this uh, sort of subjective personal experience of God that no one can question. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, Roos is saying, no, I'd rather have the experience than the evidence. Pair that with what you get from YouTube atheism. YouTube atheism almost overwhelmingly says, I'm not interested in your personal subjective experience. I'm not even interested in that for myself, because if I had a personal subjective experience of God, such as God writing it on the moon or appearing to me or someone parting an ocean in Jesus' name or something like that, I would have to question my own experience. Perhaps I'm having some sort of a delusion. So this is, and at base, interestingly, all of the evidence we could that we can present to you, scientific evidence, philosophical evidence, and I'm just talking about with God, scientific evidence for the existence of some planet that we've discovered or something like that. You take all of that in through your sensory, what? Your sensory experience. This is why Inspiring Philosophy, who was on the show last weekend, said, um, even if you don't like his idealism and all that, this much is certainly true. What you have direct access to is your experience. And so te you're taking in information about the uh, world and, and, you're, and you're having this internal experience. That's what you have the most direct access to. So ultimately, everyone believes what they believe on the basis of experience, as someone in the chat said before the show even began. 
Uh, but still, this is this is weird to me that we get accused of being the people who want an experience and 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 don't bother me with all the evidence. I just want to have my blind faith, which we're going to get to eventually in this video. But um, but yet here we have an atheist saying, I don't want the evidence. Give me an experience. That's very, very interesting. Uh, but here's the thing about that. You don't get to decide. Imagine that I wanted to meet the Queen of England. My parents actually on one occasion were in the Bahamas and uh, they were invited to go meet the um, the uh, Queen's representative there in uh, the Bahamas. This this man represents the Queen um, when you're in front of him. And so I can't remember what his name is, but let's say his name was Henry. OK, and they, they told my parents, they said, now there is a very important way when you want to meet the, the, the Queen's representative. This is how you have to do it when you want to meet Sir Henry or whatever his name was. Um, you have to you have to go in through this particular door. It's the only door you can go in. You go in. And when you get in there, Dr. Hunter, you will bow. Mrs. Hunter, you will curtsy and um, and you will not speak until you're spoken to by the Queen's representative here. Now, that's what they did. They went in there. Uh, my father curtsied. My mother bowed and they just had a big old time. But my father has often said, what if I decided I was going to do this my own way? What if I decided if I was the way I wanted to meet the, the Queen's representative was that I was going to. Uh, go in through this. I'm not going to go around through that main door. I'm going to go through the side door and I'm not going to go in there and, and cur uh, curtsy or bow or any of that business. I'm going to go in here to this machine and I'm going to get me a bag of chips and I'm going to pop open that bag of chips and eat the crumbs, eat, eat it right there. Crumbs coming all down my face. And I'm going to go in there and throw my arm around him. He's a man just like I'm a man. And I'm going to say, hey there, Henry, how's it going? Now, do you think that I would get to meet Sir Henry? Of course not. Why? Because even in this world, human beings, flesh and bone, human beings like us, there is, depending on their status, there is a particular way that if you want to meet them, you have to meet them. There's a particular door that you have to go through. Interesting that Jesus refers to himself in, I think, John chapter 10 as the door. If that's true of meeting a flesh and bone human being, why do you think you're going to wander up to God any old way you see fit or demand how he's going to reveal himself to you? There is a way. That way is through Jesus Christ. And there's a way to know the truth. And we get that in Scripture by uh, the resurrection of Jesus and by in Romans uh, chapter 1 and verse 20 and other passages that um, the invisible things of God, His uh, divine nature and, and attributes are clearly seen through what has been made um, uh, so that they are without excuse, so that people that don't believe are without excuse. So th this is the important thing. And I want you to realize, you don't get to just decide. It's as though atheists think they can decide how the highest level of royalty should reveal himself to him. Who, who do you think you are? <laughs> who do I think I am? That we can demand how God will reveal himself to us. Jesus says, I am the door. What is a door? A door is a movable structure that allows access into a building or prevents access from a, a building. Jesus said, there's no way to come to the Father but by me. If you want to get to God, there's one way to go. That's through Jesus, and there's plenty of evidence. Um, all right, let's move on to the next thing, and let's see about science and Christianity, because I think this will surprise some of you. Well, I think it has done in the past. Uh, yes, first of all, I agree with John. I think that modern science owes a great deal. I mean, you know, we want to say we've got to be broad and we've got to bring in Buddhism and all of these, but simple fact of the matter is modern science owes basically its being to Christianity. I mean, at least the science that we have. And I'm sure we'll talk about Darwinism, and I would say it owes its being to Anglican Christianity. Right, but certainly, uh, I think that you're quite right to say 
that modern science owes its being to Christianity. Now, John and I were talking just before. We both took, well, you took courses with her. I was very much influenced by a woman called Mary Hesse, who was a professor at Cambridge at philosophy. And she made a great deal of metaphor. And I bought into this lock, you know, hook, line, and sinker that I don't think that science is just, you know, like dragnet, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Science is interpretation. Mm -hmm. Science is the facts as you put them together and make sense of it. And I think the key is metaphor. Now, up until the scientific revolution, the key metaphor, that what, the, what linguists call the root metaphor, was that of an organism. The world was seen as organic. I mean, Plato in the Timaeus comes right out with that, but Aristotle too. I think there was a change of metaphor. I, I'm not saying anything that John Hedley Brooke and others wouldn't say. There was a change in metaphor to that of a machine. Now, of course, to a certain extent, it was fueled by the fact that we now had more and more sophisticated machines, and particularly clocks. I mean, this was the big one. So I think that more and more in the scientific revolution, the world was being looked at as a machine made by the divine engineer. And what happened was this became tremendously powerful by the end of the 16th and certainly into the 17th century. And you read people like uh, Robert Boyle and all of these others. They're using the machine metaphor all the time. The thing was, though, that more and more people found as much as doing science was concerned, God wasn't very helpful. That, to use the language of today, you, could, you, you just had to get on with being a, meta, a methodological naturalist and leave, as it were, metaphysical nat naturalism, the question of God or no, no God, out. And as, as one of the great historians of the scientific revolution said, eventually God became a retired engineer. All right, so there's an interesting laugh line. God became a retired engineer, obviously referencing this idea that God um, seemed necessary, uh, particularly before Darwin, but, but going back a long way, as we have um, complex machinery, like he re references a watch and things like that, uh, it seemed obvious that those things need a designer, and so it seemed obvious that um, complex organisms need designers too. And of course, the interesting thing is, as we've learned more, that's, that case has become stronger. It hasn't become less strong. But the reason, the, the point he's making is that um, the practical science of developing technology and developing uh, vaccines and all these kind of things didn't rely on theology, didn't rely on God in any direct sense. And so it seemed unimportant whether there was a God. And so you got this methodological naturalism that unfortunately bleeds over into some people's minds to metaphysical naturalism, despite what he says. Um, although there, there are many scientists and engineers who are methodological naturalists, which just means, by the way, that they don't presume the supernatural or presume God when they're doing their work in the lab, but they're still metaphysically uh, theists. They still believe these things are true about the, the way the world is. They just don't presume it for their work. In fact, they may even be, say, a biochemist, and they believe the stuff they're seeing is evidence for God, but they don't presume anything like that when they're doing their work. They're not allowed to use those things as uh, explanations, perhaps, in certain situations. And uh, so, you know, that, that's an interesting thing. Uh, but if you read John Lennox's book, God's Undertaker, and we're going to get to Lennox in just a moment, but when you read God's Undertaker, which, by the way, is a fantastic book, lots of great quotes from scientists. If you want quotes from scientists saying, 
all kinds of things that are very uncomfortable and somewhat damning for atheism. Um, that's a great book. He, he rallies a lot of those there. But he also says there, and I thought this is pretty clever, that because we, we believe, uh, because we know that Christianity um, was the boon uh, or was ga- what gave rise to the, uh, modern, um, the modern scientific revolution that we're experiencing now, uh, you could say methodological naturalism or you could say methodological theism just as well. Why? Because it's theism that presumes, and this is why the revolution in modern science, uh, because it presumed that we lived in an orderly and predictable universe and there were certain laws and that mathematics would be applicable and that you could make sense of it because it represents a rational mind. So when you're doing science, you could just as easily say methodological theism as methodological naturalism because you have to presume a very theistic notion that these things function according to um, a rational you know, cosmos that reflects a rational mind in order to do what, uh, what you're going to do. So, all right, um, someone says I said the D word. I don't know exactly what D word I said, but if I said a D word that offended somebody, which I don't think I did, forgive me. All right, um, let's unpack some of the other things that were said here. So he says, the simple, this is a quote, simple fact of the matter is modern science owes its beginning to Christianity. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because just a few weeks ago, I did a response video to a debate between Michael Shermer and David Wood, in which David Wood was making that case and saying that because Christianity was what led to the modern scientific revolution, the hypothesis, the grand hypothesis of science is that Uh, This all represents a rational cosmos that reflects a rational mind, and that would make sense on Christianity. So every scientific discovery that ever happens is confirmation of the grand hypothesis that Christianity is true. And a lot of people put in the the notes and stuff, Christians didn't give rise to the modern scientific revolution. Well, take Michael, you don't like my word for it, take Michael Roos's word for it there. Um, Difficult language to deal with. He says... um, uh, so, so he, he talks about, oh, he also says this, he says that this is a paraphrase, but he says, I don't think science is just the facts. Science is interpretation. So it's not, when you listen to people like Matt Dillahunty, or you listen to Richard Dawkins or any of these, you know, big atheist voices out there right now, they give you the impression that these Christians are giving you subjective experience, right? Which is what Michael Roos wants instead of evidence. Um, but these Christians are doing that. Yeah, I did say something was damning. Yeah, okay, you're joking around. That's fine. Uh, my good Anglican brother here, barely Protestant. Um, uh, that's fine. That's fine. Thank you. I, keeping me on my toes here. I was like, did I really say that? Uh, it's like it's like um, someone in our church, a lady in our church once said when I was a youth pastor, uh, my, my daughter said the F word. I was like, she did? Oh my gosh. I can't imagine that girl saying the F word. What'd she say? She said fart. Yeah, so anyway... Um, so th- this is interesting. Science is not just the facts. These these popularizers of science or of atheism want to say, oh, it's just about it's just about the facts, man. Uh, atheism, science, we're we're interested in the facts of the matter. No, you're not. You're interested in maybe building an interpretation based on facts, and that's what we all do with various fields of epistem that we that we draw upon for our epistemology, whether that be philosophy, history, science, experience, whatever. And so that's that's pretty important. Um, but, you know, this idea and we've already kind of touched on it, that God is a retired engineer. Let's listen as um, let's listen as Lennox now responds to that criticism. Do, do you agree with that assessment, John? 
to a certain extent, I think we have to recognize as well that it depends what area of your science you're talking about. I'm a pure mathematician, and when I teach pure mathematics, I don't mention God at all. And if I was designing the rocket locomotive that George Stevenson designed, we don't mention God at all. God doesn't arise in the vast amount of the practicalities of science, even biology, where the deeper questions come are, why can we do science at all? What is it about this universe that allows us to do science? And there I would begin to see the fingerprint of a divine mind. So that it's not so much in the mechanisms. Now, there are exceptions to that. Because when you raise questions of origins, inevitably, if you look at the history of ideas, you'll see that the question of God comes up a great deal. And God as the one who creates the universe and sustains it. But you'll not find God at the bottom of the uh, piston cylinder in uh, an automobile engine. And of course you won't. And the danger is that because that kind of practical science was so successful in spinning off technology, people then began to take what I regard as a completely illegitimate step and that is to do away with God altogether. And the main reason for that is the notion that science cannot answer every question. Scientism is rampant today, and I think it's dangerously false. Just explain what scientism is. Well, it's the idea that science is the only way to truth. And of course, as a statement, if I say science is the only way to truth, that's logically self-contradictory because that statement is not a statement of science. So if it's true, it's false. Perhaps it's a bit too early in the evening for logic like that. But the point is this, that many people like Richard Dawkins ah. and Stephen Hawking regard science as the only way to truth. Well, that would shut down um, your department of philosophy, and that would be absurd. And uh, Cambridge philosophy department reacted very severely to Hawking's statement. <coughs> All right, I want to uh, note a couple of things here. John Lennox can do the voice for Winnie the Pooh. That's hilarious, Travis. Thank you. Yes, it's very, very, it's very close, and I can't do a, as you know, I, I occasionally do uh, voices here, but Winnie the Pooh is not one. Maybe if I screamed out the window for an hour, maybe I could do Winnie the Pooh after I'm done. Um, Jacob Hubbard says, at the moment I am agnostic, leaning atheist, and channels like Cameron's and Braxton's as well as channels like Joe Schmidt are offering a few plausible arguments. Well, that's good to hear. And listen, we're going to be praying for you as you uh, consider, um, whoops, as you consider the, the evidence and, and things like that, because this is obviously, I don't, I'm not, it would be condescending for me to speak as though you don't already know this. I, I know you do know this, but this is such an important issue. This is the most important, if it's true, it's the most important issue that you will ever consider and has the highest stakes. People always get mad when I talk about the stakes, but yeah, there are stakes. It, it, it's always odd to me whenever we talk about smoking or COVID-19 or anything like that, people don't say, oh, you're just fear-mongering. Uh, kind of fear-mongering. Uh, we don't want people to die of COVID-19 and we don't want people to buy, die of cigarettes. But suddenly when we talk about the stakes, your eternal stakes, when we're talking about making a decision about this, it's, oh, that's not fair. That's, you know, an argument from emotion. No, it's not an argument from emotion. I'm giving you arguments. I'm trying to give you arguments all the time. Cameron's trying to give arguments all the time. But after we're done giving the arguments, we're also 
emphasizing the importance of this issue. That's not a part of the argument, but it's an important thing to bear in mind. It's not an, when we say uh, cigarettes can cause lung cancer. It's not a part of the argument uh, that cigarettes do cause lung cancer. We have there's arguments and reasons and evidence and data for that. But given all that evidence and data, yeah, don't don't smoke them because you might get lung cancer. See, that's that's an important thing to keep in mind. But we're going to be praying for you, Jacob. Um, I'm I'm hoping that you come back into the fold, um, and uh, and we're going to be. I hope I haven't embarrassed you here. But um, but all right. So uh, so let's see here. So he didn't lead with this. He led with why can, you know these bigger issues of how why can we do science at all. But I want to I lead with that second thing that he mentioned there. He says there are exceptions to this. When we're doing practical science, when we're looking at the scientific data, it's not as though science has nothing to say about whether or not there is a God. It's not as though there isn't data that we draw from to make an inference. I didn't add a video, a video clip from this from the debate, but one thing that Michael Roos kept saying was, well, I know you want to prove this. I know you want to prove that. And um, Linux makes a beautiful point that in Scripture, uh, Paul talks about, you know, talks about it as though it's an inference, right? You perceive these things. You, you draw an inference to the best explanation. It's not like a cold, hard proof. Although he did say in Acts chapter uh, 17 that God furnished proof by raising a man from the dead. But, um, but the truth is, what his point is, you can draw inferences about God from science or whether there's a God. And he talks about origins. And we could perhaps go to abiogenesis and look at first life and talk about the language system that is there. And I'm going to tell you something. When I look at that, I just got done a while back auditing a class um, called From the Big Bang to Dark Matter. And, um, and then I took another class on evolution. And, and in the midst of that, to counterbalance the classes led by um, secularists and, and everything. I read the, the famous book, uh, Signature in the Cell by Stephen Meyer. And on both sides of that thing, from the secularists in the universities, like at the University of Tokyo, and then also from uh, Stephen Meyer, what I kept uh, being uh, just astounded by was the level of information and not what we call Shannon information, which is just like random you know, digits, but meaningful language systems, basically, in our cells. It blows my mind that we that you can look at that and not see the and not see the design, the, the divine hand that is in that. That is obviously the first intuition. Even people like Richard Dawkins have have talked about how yeah, I mean, there's this temptation to think that it's divine, uh, that, that there's some divine hand in it. Uh, but that's not really what's going on. It, it blows my mind. And, and I don't mean that to be offensive to anyone who doesn't see it. It's more of a suggestion that I think you do see it. Um, and I think you would admit that there is that, like like Dawkins says, this impression that it is there. But there is this desire to kind of be skeptical about it because the cultural junk that we have living in the Western world that kind of um, that kind of gives us this uh, these the social suggestions kind of kind of. Uh, causes us to be skeptical, as if all the smart people reject this. And I've got news for you. The smart people do not all reject this. Um, let's see here. Carmel Crunk, who I know has urged me to study evolution in the past, and it's partly because of her that um, and people like that saying, why don't you take a class on evolution? So I audited a class through Coursera from, um, I, I can't remember if, I think this one was the University of Tokyo, and um, really, really enjoyed it. And uh uh, what did I learn? Well, I learned a lot. Um, uh, but basically what I was most interested in was 
so, I, you know, as I've said before, more than most people who haven't. OK, so if someone went for a biology degree, they probably have a, a more of a knowledge base when it comes to evolution than I had. But I think I had more than the average person because I've, uh, you know, I've been living in this world where this comes up a lot. And so I kind of understood how um, natural selection and mutations and all those kind of things work. And so how, how the I knew the general idea and I could have kind of an intelligent conversation with people about it. But what I wanted to know more about was I wanted to learn more about um, uh, the cell and how the cell works and how um, DNA and RNA and, and the protein molecule and how that's all manufactured and how that functions. And, um, and, and so I learned a little bit more about that. And so I'm still in the midst of making a concerted effort about that. One of the more interesting things I did learn um, was incidentally also covered by uh, inspiring philosophy in uh, the TED talk that he did earlier this year, um, where there's this notion among evolutionists that you can have two very similar looking creatures, uh, like a two-toed sloth versus a three-toed sloth, that independently seem to have evolved, if you go with the narrative here, evolved independently of, another, uh, of one another, but to be very, very similar. Um, that's interesting. And the idea was that this could happen more easily than you think or something. Um, yeah, it really interesting stuff, but anyway, uh, yeah, so, um, still studying all that stuff. Um, but, but it was partly because of your recommendation. So maybe that'll make you feel good for the day. Thank you for the super chat. Very substantial super chat. I really, really do appreciate that. All right. So, um, and then there is the underlying idea of why can we do science at all? And this is where we get into the issues that, that have to do with the grander deal, with the, with the laws of the universe being such that. And, and, and also, if you go check out, there's a great book called The Privileged Planet. That's kind of a, um, a, kind of a, a very popular book, kind of, kind of a classic, a modern classic among um, people interested in natural theology. And the idea is there it makes a design argument but not in the way that you think. It's based on our position in our galaxy and even within our solar system that not just that we are in the right place for life to form as it has, but that we are in the right place to observe and study the universe around us and that things could be very slightly different and we wouldn't be able to observe the universe around us the way that we are. And um, why are all these things the way they are? And then, of course, as has been popular in dialogue recently on YouTube, the applicability of mathematics. Let's listen to what Lennox has to say about that. I'd just be interested in you teasing a bit open the, the idea of we, we, why can we do science at all? That, that big question, because as a mathematician, do you agree with, I think it was Eugene Wigner who said, um, the, uh, the universe is written in the language of mathematics. He said the, he talked about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Yes, that's a famous 1961 paper that all mathematicians love. <laughs> but he was wrong, you see. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics assumes a naturalist philosophy. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely unreasonable that mathematics works if you assume an atheist or naturalistic philosophy. But if you believe there's a God whose mind is behind this universe and behind our minds, then the effectiveness of mathematics is something that I would expect. And of course, Newton, being the genius that he was, this was one of his evidences when he wrote Principia Mathematica. He wrote at the beginning of it, he hoped a thinking person would 
see that there was a deity from his descriptions of the universe. Kepler said similar things. Kepler said similar things. So, all right, so if you really want a good discussion on the applicability of mathematics and what's going on, I love the discussion between Roger Penrose and William Lane Craig on Unbelievable, um, just like this is on Unbelievable. And the reason for that is it's actually Roger Penrose who raises this. And Craig just jumps all over it because what Roger Penrose says is he said, we've got these realms that, we've, that we're trying to understand. So you've got You've got the physical stuff, right? You, you've got the, the planets and, and, and you've got all the, the, the stuff on the planets and you've got the space and you've got the Higgs boson and uh, the, you know, all these kind of things that are, that are out there, the stuff, right? The physical stuff. But then you've also got consciousness, which we're not going to get into here, but you've got consciousness, which to him, he did not think, Roger Penrose doesn't even see, he doesn't accept that consciousness is reducible to brain activity, just physical stuff either, uh, probably because of the hard problem of consciousness, that how do you get enough physical matter complex enough that suddenly you have consciousness arise, right? Um, and he says he doesn't think it's that we don't understand enough. He says he just doesn't see it happening. But take that out of the equation because I know that's going to be problematic for some of you. Just think about the physical stuff and then mathematics. Mathematics is not physical stuff, Right. The number two is not a physical thing, right? There are two physical things, and we can count them one, two, but they're not physical things. In and the number two isn't physical in and of itself. These mathematical uh, elements, these abstract objects, seem to be real. Like it's like it's a like two is real in some sense. Um, and even if you don't think these abstract objects exist, it's still true that two plus two equals four. And that's not a physical thing. That That's an interesting thing, a, a, a principle of mathematics, and it maps to the physical universe incredibly effectively. How do these two things work together? The laws of mathematics are not, I mean, math itself is not causal. So how in the world is it? Yeah, so as somebody says in the, um, in the chat, you get to this platonic idea. Is it that there is a number two, right? That, that there is a number three and, and all of the infinite numbers, right, that are out there uh, that are real in some way in some, you know, the world of the forms or something. Um, you, you get into these weird ideas or you could just say they represent the mind of God or, or something like that or flow from his nature. But, the, but what's true is these mathematical things don't have causal powers, but yet they, they map to the physical realm with an incredible, in an incredible way. And how do you make sense of that? That is a very, very interesting idea. And so what a mathematician, Lennox, who works at Oxford University, no less, says is he looks at these things and he says, look, at, at the fundamental level of origins and, and with the applicability of mathematics, I'm sure he would probably agree with consciousness and things like that. You see it very, very quickly. Um, so that's that's really interesting. All right, so um, so let's move on to the next thing, and uh, this is where it's about to get real, real interesting. Uh, let's see. So we've done math. Let's go to Roos on faith. I am not that keen on natural theology at that sort of way. I think that religious belief, certainly Christian belief, should be uh, based on faith. Should be. I'm with Cardinal Newman on this. He said. I believe in design because I believe in God. 
I do not believe in God because I believe in design. So that's my first sort of statement I would want to make about that. The second one is, well, if it is design, then you've got some questions to ask about the nature of the designer. But I mean, let's take something that neither of us brought up, hemorrhoids. My father had <laughs> I, I can't believe that any god who cared a bit about human beings would have invented a world which allowed hemorrhoids. So I think if you're going to get into design, then you've got to take the rough with the smooth, as it were. And so I, I think there are all sorts of issues okay. uh, like that. Okay, so there's a couple of interesting things now. He, First of all, I find it a bit funny that this atheist is telling us that our faith, that, that what you know Christian belief should be like is what he thought of perhaps when he was a Christian. He's going to tell us how it should be, right? It's really interesting. And he's going to tell us it should be just taking it all on faith, which it seems obvious he thinks of in the R and raw sense of faith, which is not at all the biblical understanding of faith, although admittedly some Christians hold to it culturally. But this, uh, this nonsense understanding of faith where it's just blind, based on nothing, just leap-in-the-dark type faith that's not at all what the Bible is talking about. And I know some people say, well, yeah, but Christians today talk about it that way, so that's what we need to talk about. Well, if we're going to talk about biblical issues, and we're going to talk about that at a scholarly level, and we're going to talk about the Bible, if you're not talking about what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about faith, then you're not talking about the faith that we're interested in. Um, we'll get to that in just a moment. But he says you should believe... In design, because, he says, I believe in design because I believe in God. I do not believe in God because I believe in design. That's how he thinks we should think of it. That's weird to me. Why is it weird? Because it can go in both directions. Think about a parallel to that. I believe there are nicely designed computers because I believe there are computer designers. I do not believe there are computer designers because I believe there are nicely designed computers. Well... If you saw a nicely designed computer, it's perfectly fair to infer that there is a computer designer. And if you met a computer designer, it's perfectly reasonable to infer that what you see, um, that, that, that there might be nicely designed computers. I, I just don't get it. I, I really don't get why this doesn't go in both directions. It seems like a platitude, an atheist platitude, which if we've got an atheist here who's only interested in subjective experience and doesn't care about the evidence or doesn't, isn't looking for the evidence in order to be convinced, we might expect him to also have faith-like platitudes um, as well. Uh, all right, so he says something interesting here. Uh, we're going to get to the faith thing. Don't, don't think I've forgotten it. We're going to get to it. But this, this is interesting um, because he says something about the designer that goes in two directions. And so it may have been stated sloppily or he wanted to work in something funny about hemorrhoids in the midst of it when it really didn't fit. But it seems like on the one hand, he's saying, when you, if you want to talk about design, you've got to take the rough and the smooth. He could be talking there about the Hitchens-esque um, point about poorly designed things. Or he could be talking about the problem of evil. And since I happen to know that he thinks, in, he thinks a lot about the problem of evil, it's probably that as well, but let's talk a little bit about this. Um, so as far as poorly designed things go, uh, I was, some of you have heard me say this before, but in my first ever debate with a Harvard graduate um, and professor of world religions at Florida International University, Daniel Alvarez, you can view it on this channel as well as our response video to it. Um, he brought this up. He said, um, well, what about the poorly designed things we see in the world? Surely a God wouldn't have done it that way. Um, Interestingly, poorly designed things are poorly, perhaps, from our estimation anyway, 
designed things, right? Poorly designed. If you're granting poorly designed things, you're granting that they're designed things, or at least they exhibit design. And so there had been an automobile made in Cuba by Ford Motor Company. Um, and most of the people listening to this debate were Cuban Americans. And uh, they had made the first ever automatic transmission automobile f- uh, for people in Cuba. And they called it a foot dash the letter N, N, and then dash, go, foot and go. Because they're trying to convey that you could just you could just hit the accelerator and it would change gears on its own. So foot and go. And they began to call it a fatingo, fatingo. And everyone knew this was a poorly designed automobile. People made jokes about it. You know, just if you had a bad car ever after all that fatingo over there because it was a poorly designed car. But you know what no one ever said about the fatingo? Well, clearly this didn't have a designer. No, of course they had a designer. It was just poorly designed. Now, I may disagree with you about whether a particular thing is, is poorly designed in nature, or it could be the result of the fall, but what we don't need to say is that it's not designed. Now, if he meant the problem of evil, on the other hand, they have a whole discussion about that. We've got videos on that. I, I'll push you toward the short video I have in the short videos playlist on the problem of evil, and you can check that out uh, at greater length there because it's not really... The, the central focus of what I want to do here. So, so uh, go check that out. It's why would God allow bad things to happen or something like that. Um, all right. So let's move on to Linux. And this is where we're going to get to the faith stuff because I wanted to allow Linux to speak for himself. It's quite clear that Michael and I differ fundamentally on what we mean by faith. Because you see, faith to me is part and parcel of my life as an intellectual and a scientist. Scientists believe certain things. I believe in the theory of gravitational attraction. Why is that? Because I have evidence for it. I believe that my wife loves me. Why? Because I have evidence for it. And my Christian faith consists not in faith as a leap into the unknown. It's evidence-based commitment. Otherwise, I wouldn't be remotely interested in Christianity. Okay. Um, sorry. Get back to the screen here. Um, so, all right. So first of all, before I jump into this couple of questions that were asked, uh, I, I, I can't go back and find them all, but, um, so someone says, what about original sin? I mean, that's, that's always been a problem for me. And if evolution is true, how do you get original sin? Um, again, someone did mention that I have a study through the book of Genesis. I, it's still not complete, but I've got like 30 something hours, um, where we talk about all that in great detail. But here's the thing. Uh, the Augustinian understanding of original sin that says you have a, a sin nature and a guilt nature, um, that may, there may or may not be a problem for that on um, a view that had evolution, uh, for those of you that might be theistic evolutionists out there, um, because there uh, we, we, are not only, we not only receive a nature and an environment that's inclined towards sin from living in a world that now has sin in it, but you also have personal culpable culpability guilt from Adam, like you're born with that, with that guilt. But if you hold an understanding of original sin that I hold, which is that you get the sin nature, that there's a nature and environment inclined towards sin, but you're not personally held culpable for Adam's sin, you're personally held culpable for your own sin, well, then there, I, don't, I don't know that there's as much of a problem there. And someone mentioned, well, if evolution were true, then, then the fall wouldn't be a thing. It would still be a thing in terms of spiritual fallenness, is what we're talking about here. Now, in terms of the fallenness of nature, I think it still would be an issue. Because let's just imagine that you still had earthquakes and, and uh, you know, animals killing each other and, and, and uh, all the things going on that are basically going on now. But... 
um, the pair that God was, was, you know, had, had set his spirit upon or whatever, were walking in the garden with God. And if we take that literally, um, God could have guided them such that you had sort of an idea of the garden that is the presence of God. They never would have encountered any of these things that might be important for a sustainable universe, but would be tragic and cause suffering if man encountered them. So there's ways that, I mean, sometimes when people put comments in the, uh, and I'm not committing myself to that position, I'm just saying, well, sometimes when people put comments in, I'm glad you do because we get to talk about it and answer them, but sometimes they're put with like this emphatic, like matter of fact sort of way, and they represent someone who I think sometimes hasn't understood that there's very little that could be brought up that hasn't been thought about and answered in the history of the church. So I hope that that's helpful in some way to some people. Now, so uh, this issue, so what what Roos is talking about is something more akin to fideism. Fideism is the belief that faith is something that Christianity should be believed on the basis of a faith defined something like just blind faith, just, just based on little or nothing. And uh, so, so if you want to picture it, here's a, here's a thought experiment, or not a thought experiment, but an image or an analogy for what this could be like. Imagine that we're looking at, imagine that we like to go cliff diving, like into water, but we're, we're standing like 30 feet back from the edge of a cliff, and we don't know what's at the bottom of that cliff. We just know there's a cliff. The cliff could be death or something, you know, or, or commitment to something, to Christianity, right? And we don't, we don't have any idea what, what's going on over there. We see people just running and jumping off the edge of the cliff, and you won't know until you jump what's at the bottom. Could be water so that you'll be safe and fine and even have an enjoyable time. Could be knives and swords pointing upward. You don't have any idea, but you just run blindly and jump off the edge of the cliff. Uh, that's something more like fideism. Uh, biblical faith is trust or conviction, trust in something that you could have based on good evidence. So it would be more like walking up to the edge of the cliff, measuring the measuring the distance from the top of the cliff to the surface of the water, getting in the water, swimming around, make sure everything's okay, and then trusting that you'll be okay on the basis of the evidence that you have. That's a very important difference, and there will still always be that moment for anyone that's ever been cliff diving where when you get to the edge of the cliff, everything inside of you says, is, is like tensed up because this is scary to put your trust in something, but it could be a trust you're putting based on good evidence. And so that's a very important thing. Uh, how do I know this is the kind of faith that the Bible is talking about? Well, I have in front of me, the, the, the biblical word is pistis, and it's used 227 times in the New Testament. I have it uh, broken down based on every New Testament book, Matthew eight times, Mark five times, Luke 11 times, Acts 14 times, Romans 35 times, all together in the New Testament. It's used 227 times. Most of the time, skeptics like to point to something like Hebrews 11.1. 1, uh, faith is the evidence of things not seen or whatever. Let me give you a better, uh, more accurate translation based on the Greek. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So you can have that assurance or that conviction based on good evidence because faith, pistis, just means trust, loyalty, or a conviction of something. So when you hear Aaron Ra talking about this, guess what? And, and he's saying that faith is this blind faith or whatever. Understand, that is not a biblical faith. It's not up for debate. It's not a matter of opinion. He's just wrong. That's all there is to it. 
And anytime you hear someone talking that way, you need to point that out to them. Do I have an early uh, evidence of someone using this word in this way that reveals that this is how the word was used at the time? Maybe some extra biblical evidence. As a matter of fact, I do thank you for asking. Theophilus of Antioch in his letter to Autolycus, book one, chapter eight, says this. Do you not know that faith is the leading principle in all matters? For what husbandman can reap unless he uh, first trusts his seed to the earth? Or who can cross the sea unless he first entrusts himself to the boat and the pilot? And what sick person can be healed unless he first trusts himself to the care of the physician? And what art or knowledge can anyone learn unless he first applies and entrusts himself to the teacher? If then the husbandman trusts the earth and the sailor the boat and the sick the physician, will you not place confidence in God even when you hold so many pledges at his hand? So the idea there is we have this word used to refer to trusting in something that you know works based on good evidence. So what is biblical faith? Biblical faith is trusting in God or remaining loyal to God and trusting that he'll do for you in the future what he said he would do based on what we have good evidence to believe he's done in the past. So this is all important stuff to keep in mind. Um, what about this idea of scientists uh, believing? Lennox talked about scientists have faith. Scientists believe in certain things. The only reason you as an atheist would buck at the idea of scientists having faith is if you have the wrong understanding of faith. The biblical understanding of faith, which is trust or conviction, yeah, scientists have that. And, um, and that's perfectly fine. Dan Barker famously says, well, you don't see scientists getting around in a sanctuary saying, I believe in the Higgs boson. I know the Higgs boson is real. I'm trusting in the Higgs boson. Uh, but you do see Christians doing that in worship to God. I believe in you, God. I love you, God, because they're trying to work up this thing, this, this, uh, no, you know, believe in what you know ain't so type thing. And as I recently said on John McRae's channel, what do you mean? The reality is that's not... The difference there, it, that's true that that's what's happening. The scientists don't do that with the Higgs boson, and Christians do do that with God. But it doesn't mean that um, that's not happening because we're trying to work it up in ourselves. Although, admittedly, that may be so true of some Christians. Uh, but in general, it's because of the context. The Higgs boson is not a person. Uh, God is a person. And he's tripersonal, but he represents a person. So that is how you talk to a person. I believe in you. I love you. Um, I'm going to be faithful to you. Just as a beautiful love song to, you know, perhaps from me to my wife might be a similar wording. I, I love. Okay, hopefully I'm back now. Are you guys here? Testing, testing, check, check. Let me know. Let me know if I'm back. Testing. Okay, back. All right. Uh, don't know where I left off, but what the way we talk about um, a person, like if we're like when when we're talking to a, someone we love romantically, we might say, um, uh, "I do believe in you. I love you." But that's because we're not trying. I'm not trying to work up in myself my belief that my wife is real uh, or something, or that we love each other. I know we do, but it's just that that's how you talk to a person. You don't talk to the Higgs boson that way. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind. What's wrong with Dan Barker? Is he not, um, uh, does he not, uh, is he not romantic with his wife? Uh, I don't know. Um, but, um, so interesting stuff. All right, let's, uh, I'm going to assume that everything's 
working off. Someone said you left off at buffering. Yeah, well, um, I, I hope everything's going well now. So uh, let's let's keep trucking with this. Uh, I, and I hope this is still the same broadcast. I think that it is. All right, let's move on and let's see the next thing, which has to do with testability. You mentioned what I would call testability. If you can test, to, test Newton's laws and all this kind of thing. And I'm constantly up against the question, how can you as a scientist believe this stuff when it's not testable? And I say, who said it isn't testable? You see, I, why am I sitting here as a Christian? Because I tested the claims that Christ has made. Let me give you one simple example. We might want to deal with this later on, I don't know, but Christ promises that those who trust him and receive him will receive peace with God and forgiveness and a new life and a new power. I've seen that happen to me and to people endless times. And when you see two and two make four all the time, you begin to believe that two and two make four. I think it's eminently testable. And so to come back on Michael's side for a moment, I think there are different levels of argument, Michael. You mentioned testing laws in the laboratory, but there are many things in science as we know, that are not testable. You can't test the origin of life in the lab. You have to make an inference to the best explanation in the past. And that is true of many things. So for me, the evidence on which my faith is based is cumulative. Part of it is objective, intellectual, arguments, and all this kind of thing. But a great deal of it has to do with the evidence of does it actually work in life? Now, notice the difference between these two guys. Again, back to the thumbnail as we've been referencing. The, the one guy, the Christian, John Lennox, is saying, hey, I believe on every aspect of knowledge intake I can get from the world to build my epistemology. It's personal experience, it's science, it's philosophy, it's history, it's all these things to, to make a cumulative case. And, and it practically works. So it's all these things together. But when we come over to Roos, Roos has been saying throughout the, this whole thing, and you're going to see more of it in just a moment, no, 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 it should just be blind faith. No, it should be, um, it, sh it should just be on the basis of experience, if anything, and we can't know, and it's unknowable. Uh, listen, he says, I'm not interested in the evidence. I don't think evidence would convince me. I'm, I'm interested in experience. This is backwards from how it's portrayed, and so I'm glad that you're getting to see it here. But uh, we're going to move on now to, um, to uh, oh, and by the way, the important thing that he says there is um, it's testable, just not in the way that some scientific tests are done. So it, it is testable, just not the way that some scientists, he said it's inference to the best explanation. Do you know you have to use inference to the best explanation in science? That, that's what you have to do. And sometimes it's not a repeatable test, like, like the origin of life or the origin of the physical universe. Uh, it may be, the origin of life may be reproducible at some point, um, but, but not yet, not the way we're talking about. So uh, important stuff to keep in mind. All right, we're almost done now. Let's move on to some comments about the resurrection so that we can bring it more specifically to Christianity. A couple of things I want to say. I think that John and I probably have a very different take on the resurrection. I have a feeling that for you, John, proving that it actually happened physically is very important to you. Yeah. And you're the sort of person who says, well, look at the fact that it was women who reported on this and women would not normally take it. So yeah, this must point. be significant and all, must be true. Whereas, as a, as a conservative non-believer, <laughs> I think the physical resurrection is totally 
unimportant. What? I think that what is important is that those disciples on the third day who were downcast, who felt that seen this man you know, put to death in the most horrible way, suddenly said, our creator lives. And well, that, yeah, that, that that's was important. within them. Whether there were laws to prove this, I think is irrelevant. And so as I but, say, huh? I take my religion much more at a spiritual level. <laughs> I thought level. you were the atheist. I, did. <laughs> yeah. I said, <laughs> if I did, I'm going to take it. But I'm beginning to worry that you're not an evidence-based atheist. <laughs> oh. You see, to say that the resurrection is irrelevant, I find Utterly astonishing. The physical resurrection. Yes. I did not I say find the resurrection it, yes, was irrelevant. Well, I think the resurrection but, for a Christian is the key but moment. just a minute. The word anastasis in Greek means standing up again. It is a physical resurrection. Yeah, it is a physical resurrection. I, I, you know, I, I, I like how N.T. Wright says it too. He points to 1 Corinthians 15. How Paul says, The gospel that I preached to you while I was yet with you, that Christ was dead, buried, and rose again. And he says, um, you know, when you say dead, buried, and rose again, you no more need to specify bodily or physically than you would have to say if someone walked down the street, you'd have to specify on their feet, right? Uh, but anyway, uh, good stuff there. So bodily resurrection is irrelevant? Uh, first of all, um, yes, I'm aware you can hear me, John Beavers. Um, I have to say, maybe I think, I'm not sure I believe him. I really hate to ever say that because I like Michael Roos. Understand, I, I like him as far as a person goes. I'm not sure I believe him. How can you say, because that's equivalent to saying if Jesus did rise bodily, it doesn't really matter. What do you mean it doesn't really matter? I mean, uh, Paul says, if Christ be not raised, we of all men are most miserable. I mean, come on, it doesn't matter. And this is why John Lennox seems so shocked by the statement. Um, but but that's it's shocking, to say the least. But yes, it is bodily resurrection. He says, um, it's it, he's pointing out, it's more like it's the message. It's what it meant to these disciples and apostles. Not not so much the meaning of the event. Well, why can't it be the meaning and the message? The, I mean, the, I mean, the... Uh, it's the message and, and meaning, not the event. Why can't it be the message, the meaning, and the actual event itself? The evidence or the event is the thing that shows us that the message is true, right? That's that's why it's so important. Um, and you're not an evidence-based atheist. This goes back to what we've been um, kind of saying. I think he's right there. It does kind of look that way. Now, just to be clear, if I've said, I, I want to make sure I say what he said. Maybe I've said, speaking too quickly, um, that he's not interested in the evidence. Well, that's an inference I make from his statement. This is what he actually said, something like that uh, it, it, he, uh, that's not what would convince him, right? That an experience would convince him. So maybe it's not fair to say, but he says he doesn't think that evidence would ever convince him. So, um, so yeah, it seems like not interested in the evidence, more interested in experience. You could definitely say more interested in experience. Um, let's let's hear this next thing, though, about miracles, because we're getting down to the end. There's only two clips left, but I want you to hear this thing about miracles. But there are special events where the intervention level is higher. And of course, that is what I would expect. I would expect it rarely because a God who constantly intervened in a special way, well, would intervene everything virtually out of existence. In fact, I do believe that the regularities of the universe are essential for us to perceive miracles. And that is why I disagree very strongly with your notion that these beliefs grew up in a pre-scientific uh, time. They did in terms of chronology. But you see, when 
um, the man who was born blind was healed by Jesus. He said, well, since the beginning of the world, this has never happened. He recognized it as a miracle, as a special event caused by God, because he knew what normally happened. And when, May, when Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant, he didn't say, oh, marvelous, how very interesting. God did that, did he? No. He wanted to divorce her. Why? Because he knew as well as any modern gynecologist where babies come from. And therefore, we've got to realize, David Hume was totally wrong about this, talking about these things, beliefs arose in pre-scientific days, because you can only recognize something as a supernatural intervention if you know the norm. That's why Jesus' resurrection was so impressive, because dead bodies weren't popping out of the graves all over the place. I, I just feel, John, that you're reducing the Gospels to the level of Grimm's fairy tales. Uh, that, you, you feel. Know, we, we've got miracles happening in Grimm's fairy tales, and I think that the way that John's approaching the Gospel is... If, let me be rather rude about this. I think you're downgrading a, a, a tremendously important story to one of, you know, David Copperfield, that, you know, Jesus was a miracle doer. And I just don't see Jesus in that sort of light. Maybe. Well, I mean, does it matter really how you, what light you see Jesus in? It matters what, what, what is the truth about Jesus. Now, Someone um, said this. I think this is actually a very... I'm glad you made this comment. This is helpful to, to comment on. Why would God ever need to intervene? Shouldn't the world play out exactly as God intended? An all-knowing, all-powerful God, uh, I think you mean to say, shouldn't need miracles. You know, that's, that's an interesting thing. Uh, there are... So I've got a friend who works here at Trinity Seminary who is a theistic evolutionist, and he doesn't like the understanding that some theistic evolutionists have where God has to kind of step in and tweak the system occasionally to get um, the, the, the next phase to go or whatever, some new species to emerge. Um, but but, with, but it's, he, he thinks it makes more sense or seems more like God if God set it up in such a way that it just all kind of went out like that. Um, but whether the, whatever's going on there, when we come to this sort of an issue, um, with God interacting in human history with miracles, it's because God, it's, it's, I said in the last stream about something else, it's because God is an interactive God. He, he's a person. He wants to interact with us. This is realistic because it's a relationship. And I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind. That's why the, the give and take, that's why the interacting personally with people and showing signs and to confirm messages and, and things like that. Um, yeah, someone already put in the, in the uh, I think Brando it was, put, put in there, and I threw it up on the screen. But uh, as you see, uh, Linux gets to it. it. If it happened left, right, and center, if miracles happened all the time, number one, um, it would interfere with the regularity of the universe. Remember, we were just saying that the, the whole modern scientific revolution happened primarily because Christians suspected that we had a, a, a cosmos that was predictable and that uh, followed certain... Um, uh, rational, that it reflects a rational mind, right? That it, that it, that's intelligible and these sorts of things. If miracles were happening left, right, and center in an obvious way, it would make it very difficult to have that sort of a cosmos. But here's another thing. And this is what Brando pointed out. If it's everywhere, it loses its meaning, right? It's not interesting anymore. It ceases to kind of be a miracle in any of the, in some of the senses that we mean the term miracle. I mean, this is one of my problems with the modern Star Wars <laughs> universe, honestly. Um, you've got the uh, Star Wars Rebels show where, what is his name? Ezra. He's he's a he's a 
uh, orphan child who learns to use the force and he becomes kind of a messiah figure luke kind of the same thing becomes kind of a messiah figure um same thing with uh with ray same thing with uh, many of the video games it's like when everybody is a special messiah figure when everybody's special nobody's special right at least in that way you know with this sort of special power and all that so it's um it's it's important to understand miracles lose some of the meaning if they're happening left right and center that's important another thing is i didn't play the clip but roos talks about the fact that oh this is what and i may be getting him wrong but i think the sentiment was basically yeah we would expect these first century people to think this way and and linux comes back with no 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 they understood they weren't idiots the reason they thought it was amazing that jesus rose from the dead was because they recognized that doesn't happen and so it's a miracle the virgin birth it's a miracle healing somebody who was born blind doesn't happen it's a miracle these are important things these people recognize them for what they were because they did know what that was like so those are all I think pretty interesting. Um, so whenever people say something like, oh yeah, you point to these, you know, first century sheep herders or whatever thing, of course they believed all of this. You realize that they reported it to us. And the reason they reported it, reported it to us was because it was unusual. And they knew that it didn't work like that either. Um, interesting stuff. All right, last clip of the day and then we'll be done. Um, and those of you that chose to watch this instead of capturing Christianity, blessings upon you. May your children rise up and call you blessed. And you can be free after this to go back and, and watch what you missed. And I encourage you to do that. But let's listen now as Roos alleges that Linux is downgrading. I find it difficult to see that it's a downgrading when through all of this, to my mind, comes an increasing sense of the sheer wonder and glory of God in Christ the Son of God, and evidence that that's who he is. I would put it the other way. I think you're downgrading it to the level of Grimm's fairy tales because I believe in the story. I'm an Irishman. I'm a storyteller, and I love the story. It's not either or, Michael. It's both and in my case. I want the story, but I want the story... I understand the story. It's not what I want. The question is what is true or not. And I believe the story is in enhanced and increased in its power because behind it there is a reality. And the reality is, in terms of what we're talking about, the increasing revelation of Christ as to who he was. And it was as a result of watching these signs that led people to believe that he was the Son of God, the Messiah, and they took that extra step of trusting him and had life in his name. All right. Um, yeah, so uh, funny comments there. Um, someone asks, uh, the programmer asks, is Dr. Roos a naturalist? He says he's a naturalist, but he doesn't know if he's to go so far as to call himself a materialist. So, yeah. Um, all right. So, so this, is, this is great because his point is, and I thought that was beautifully put, the point is, look, you're trying to act like there's something deeper. And, and by the way, progressive Christianity does this all the time. Act like there's something deeper and more meaningful if it's not exactly like it sounds, if there's not really a miracle or whatever. Um, yeah, no, you can have both. You can have the beautiful story and the reality that is also beautiful that stands behind it. Um, that's that's there's nothing there's nothing, you know, improper about that. That's uh, perfectly fine. So um, I thought this was a really helpful discussion because it touched on so many things. And I, just to recap, we talked about Roos being gr growing up as a Quaker, and um, and that was such an important thing. But yet he 
fell out of interest in it, like someone would lose uh, interest in stamps. Uh, he talked about how he maybe I'm misinterpreting that. I, I fully admit I might be misinterpreting this, but it seems like when he talks about there's a Calvinist understanding of God that he had as an atheist that, that hey, maybe it's like God took me down this road because he's controlling everything and how that's not what the majority of Christians have ever thought. And that's not what I think the Bible teaches. Um, God is unknowable, but you're claiming to know that about God. Um, that seems a little bit um, self-referentially incoherent. Uh, what would convince him? Well, he's not interested in being convinced by evidence, but rather an experience. Um, science and Christianity, Roos himself says, simple fact of the matter is modern science owes its beginnings to Christianity, owes its being to Christianity, and science is not just the facts, man. Science is an interpretation of the facts and what they mean. Um, uh, what, you know, Roos says, and it matters what area of science we're talking about. So, yeah, you don't find God at the bottom of your pistons in an automobile, but you do find them when you think about mathematics or origins. Really important. Uh, math is one of those examples of that that he talks about. Roos on faith. Roos thinks we should all take it on blind faith. But as we saw, that is problematic and it's not what the Bible's talking about. He talked about poor design, but poor design, uh, by your estimation, would still be design. Linux, uh, we talked about his understanding of faith, which is the biblical understanding of faith as trust and conviction that can be based on evidence. Um, we talked about testability, and it is testable in some of the same ways that science, uh, that scientific tests are done, uh, just not all the ways that scientific tests are done, but that's because you shouldn't um, hug only to science as a way of getting knowledge. You should, uh, you should go with philosophy, history, experience, science, all the ways you can. The bodily resurrection seems unimportant to Roos, but it is the center, the historical centerpiece of the Christian faith. And uh, it, is it is a bodily resurrection, and I'm not sure I believe him when he says it's unimportant, because if you're saying uh, whether or not he really rose from the dead isn't that important, I, I think you'd like to know that, and if you found out it was true, it would change your world. Miracles, um, if they were happening everywhere, they might lose their meaning and would interfere with the regularity of the universe, which is one of the things we talked about was so fascinating and led to the modern revolution in science by Christians and first century uh, individuals were not idiots. And ultimately, it doesn't downgrade the story to say that they, th these miraculous things in the resurrection really did happen. You still have all the beauty of the story that Roos wants to hold on to, but you also have the reality that stands behind all of that. And that brings us down to the end. And I want to say, I've enjoyed being with you. I know there are several in here in the chat. I know of more than one in the chat right now who are struggling with these questions right now. They don't know exactly where they stand on these things. I want to re-emphasize um, re to you that there is incredible evidence. I don't buy divine hiddenness, really. I understand why people have the, the, the sense that there is divine hiddenness, I guess. But I agree with Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that the invisible things of God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what has been made. Every physical object and concept in the universe can be harnessed as evidence for the, the existence of God, and the resurrection uh, case is powerful. And here's another uh, spin on it. If you can get to God at least, where would you look for a, a God who created us to be relational human beings, uh, to be in relationships? Where would you look for, um, for him to have possibly tried to communicate with you? Well, you might look to the great monotheistic religions that are not fraught with the uh, contradictory issues that are in most polytheistic religions. You would look to Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, and in that, you would find that there is a man who is the centerpiece of human history, unarguably the most important man in human history who claimed to be uh, the spokesperson for God, arguably claimed to be God in the flesh. More statues devoted to him. His message has spread throughout the world. 
um, without him ever having written anything down. That would be a good place to look for. Maybe God tried to communicate that way. And so I think there is incredible reason to believe that Christianity is true. And I encourage you to come back because the stakes are high and God loves you and he's reaching out to you. And I don't think it's a mistake that you are on this channel and channels like it. With that, um, if you're out there and, hey, you want to support what we're doing and get lots of good stuff, we also have more content at patreon.com slash trinityradio. We're going to be doing a giveaway soon, and it's going to be a collection of books. And I've never mentioned that until now. And if you go become a patron right now at any amount, you get access to um, uh, five courses at the seminary level, multiple eBooks, episodes that have never been released, all kinds of good stuff there. I hope that you'll go and check that out. And um, uh, anything else we need to talk about before we sign off today? I don't think there is. You've been a fun group. I really appreciate that you were here. I did not know. I did not know that Cameron at Capturing Christianity had a stream going. Thursday, Cameron. Thursday is supposed to be your stream day. I can't keep track of all your streams, man. Come on. So I've enjoyed being with you. Not a single dislike. Well, that would be a miracle, but there is one. One dislike. Daggummit. Well, do I like pineapple on pizza? Mason, uh, been a good sport today. Do I like pineapple on pizza? That is an abomination. My wife likes pineapple on pizza. So, you know, we all have to live with certain things um, in the world. I don't have hemorrhoids, but I do have to live with pineapple on pizza in my household. Thanks, Isaiah Braxton. I really appreciate that. That means a lot. And uh, hey, two days in a row doing streams. Maybe we'll have more streams this week. I know we'll have at least one more. Um, and Dr. Flowers was on too? Wow. Well, listen. Yeah, we crossed the streams. <laughs> I love all of you. If I didn't thank you by name, I really appreciate you. And, and again... Encourage people to subscribe. If you're not a subscriber, please subscribe. We've kind of hit a plateau on subscribers. And YouTube has removed some subscribers recently as I think they're trying to clean things up. So, um, yeah, your wife is a heretic. I'll let her know that. Hey, if you're ever in Evansville, check out Parlor Donuts, the best donut in Evansville, Indiana, and perhaps soon coming to a city near you. They do not yet underwrite this program, but maybe soon. And with that... I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.